Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to discuss a really controversial topic. Should we get people to lose weight or replace their joints? Now, as we know, being above a healthy weight is a major risk factor for developing knee osteoarthritis and subsequently undergoing total knee replacement. The rates of obesity in our general community have increased dramatically over past decades. And in many developed nations, about two thirds of adults are above a healthy weight. And that appears to be going up every year. Now, although total knee replacement is a wonderfully cost-effective treatment for end-stage knee osteoarthritis, the rising rates of obesity are resulting in more knee replacements being performed at a younger age. More surgeons are seeing more people who are above a healthy weight on a regular basis and having conversations with them about what to do about their weight and when and if they need surgery. On this week's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Chris Vertulo to discuss the rising rates of obesity, their relation to knee joint replacement, and what we can do about it, both as a medical community, but also as a society. Now, we've met Chris before because we were fortunate enough to have him on the podcast with Tepo Yavinen talking about, should I have an arthroscopy for my knee arthritis? Professor Chris Fertullo 
has been a specialist orthopedic knee surgeon since 2001. He's the director and treasurer of the Australian Orthopedic Association, current past president of the Australian Knee Society, chair of the Australian Orthopedic Association, continuing orthopedic education, and an adjunct professor at Griffith University. He is currently listed amongst the top 100 orthopedic influences in the world. He's involved in the treatment of elite athletes and professional sports teams, as well as being a strong advocate for sports injury prevention at a national level. He has a strong focus on research into knee surgery, founding Knee Research Australia, and holds a PhD in the area of improving outcomes of knee replacement. Hello, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to have you back, and it's a topic that I know is probably at the forefront of your clinical mind on a regular basis, but probably also from a policy perspective, something that you have to think about on a regular basis. But before we get into the main content, just in an effort for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better, can you just share with us a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? So I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I specialize in knee surgery. I practice in private practice. And so about half the week I consult and I see people with knee pain for various reasons, young, old, uh, traumatic, atraumatic, which I've been doing all today. And then the other half of the week I operate. So I'll do tomorrow knee replacements. And then later in the week, I might do knee reconstructions and sometimes realignment procedures and those sort of things. And I'm also have a research role. I'm an adjunct professor at Griffith University where we do a lot of research into some of the areas I think we're going to talk about. And I also have a PhD, which is in decision-making of surgeons and around knee replacement. And I've also set up Knee Research Australia, which we look at outcomes of knee replacement, knee reconstruction, et cetera. And I might also have a role on the current treasurer and one of the general directors of the Australian Orthopedic Association, and I'm the current past president of the Australian Knee Society as well. So a lot of that's very relevant and obviously critically important as it relates to the topic of today. But before we get into the topic, partly because I'm primarily envious of where you live, but when you're not doing your day job, what do you like to do? I have too many hobbies. So I've always been a keen cyclist my whole life, both road and mountain biking and surfing because I grew up here on the Gold Coast. And then more recently, um, do a bit of motorbike riding, both off-road and on-road and fishing, I guess. And also do a fair bit of uh, ocean kayaking as well, to name a few. So that's sort of sort of things I like to do. I'm going to stop you talking there. So I just don't feel too badly about where I live and what I do with most, most of my time. Very envious. Wish I could be doing more of that. Now, obviously, the, the content of today is very much centered around joint replacements and the increasing impact of people above a healthy weight on driving up both rates of surgery, but also societal demand and health service utilization for that particular problem. What's the association, what's the linkage here between a person having an increased body mass index and the likelihood of them needing a joint replacement? So it's, it's really multifactorial and it's quite complicated. If you step back, 
And if you've got a high BMI and say you're a 15 year old and you're playing sport and you tear your anterior cruciate ligament, those young people with higher BMI suffer more damage when they do that. So straight up, they suffer more meniscus damage and that plus the ruptured ACL dramatically increases their lifetime risk of osteoarthritis. So it starts at an early age. And then we all have a genetic predisposition to developing osteoarthritis, but a high BMI allows that to be expressed, unfortunately, earlier. So rather than being 70 when you come along with your arthritic knee or 80 or, in fact, older, uh, you turn up at sort of 50 and you're starting to get osteoarthritis. So it also increases the risk, but on top of that, it actually makes it more symptomatic. So very five kilos or so you're over your ideal weight, your uh, symptoms start to increase. And so your progression starts to increase. So it actually has a multifactorial effect. And it's not just the weight, not just the mechanical load, but the adipose tissue has some type of inflammatory effect on your articular cartilages to both increase your symptomatology, but also to increase the uh, risk of developing osteoarthritis and then the rate of progression as well which researchers are beginning to understand to some degree. But certainly a lot of patients who I see, and I say, look, you know, I've had people today and I've encouraged them just to see their GPs, uh, start a uh, weight loss program, which I probably prefer is lifestyle change, and also to commence you know, a strengthening program. And that really does help people. Most people are improved by that. So Chris, obviously, just to summarize what you've said, it, it obviously increases the likelihood of a person requiring surgery, increases the symptoms they're experiencing, increases the rapidity of their progression. Just to convert a couple of the quick acronyms you used. So BMI, for those who are unfamiliar, is just the body mass index and ACL as the anterior cruciate ligament. Now, in the study you've just done, which kind of prompted today's conversation, what proportion of the people that were getting the joint replacements were either overweight or obese. And how does that compare to the normal population? Yeah, so certainly the study you're referring to, this is, you know, it's not causation, but it's association. But a much higher proportion of people who were receiving knee replacements had a high body mass index than those who weren't receiving it. So they're actually quite a lot higher and about two-thirds or more, this is the Australian population, of people receiving joint replacements are either obese or overweight. So that's a BMI of over 25, so the 30, or a BMI of 30 and above. And there's different classes of obesity. But basically, as your weight goes up, your BMI obviously goes up, and then your uh, risk of symptomatology increases as well. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, from a community perspective, we're seeing increasing numbers of people above a healthy weight, whether they're overweight or, or fit into one of the obesity categories. So that at least from a general community perspective, that appears to be going up. And, you know, as you say, this is association, not causation, but the rates of surgery similarly appear to be going up in, in the general community. What's the problem? What's the issue with operating on people who are above a healthy weight? Um, and what can be done about I guess, reducing some of the risks that may be associated with, with that. So with any surgery, but particularly knee replacement, operating on people who are overweight or obese increases the risk of complications. So in the short term, their risks of infections and blood clots are higher. And 
the risk of revision, that is where we have to redo the surgery due to prosthesis loosening, prosthesis infection, instability, all the sort of reasons that we often have to redo them is higher in overweight patients and much, much higher in patients who are obese and the more obese they are than the higher the risk of needing another operation. As you alluded to before, obesity also appears to um, alter the age and with, again, whether it's causation association, but it alters the age at which a person is having their operation. What was the age difference that you found in, in your study? Can you remember? Yeah, look, uh, I'll, just, I'll just throw it at you. <laughs> so it appears both in men and women to be happening at, on average about seven years earlier than normal weighted counterparts. So, you know, on average, this is probably happening in the early 60s as opposed to their later 60s. So at least from a surgical demand perspective, having a big impact. So I guess the thing I, I really want to dig into, and I'd be interested both in your perspective as a surgeon, but also as someone who thinks a lot about policy and health service use, should we just keep increasing rates of joint replacement or should we do something more about obesity prevention? What's your take? Yeah, so there's two aspects of that. Certainly obese patients present younger probably because their symptomatology is greater, as you say. And as I mentioned earlier, not just the load, but also the uh, adipose tissue has an inflammatory effect and in that in itself increases their symptoms. And the obesity problem we can divide into two parts. That is the treatment of the obese. And then the second part is the prevention. So the prevention side of things it's difficult because we almost need a real societal change, both with our transport mechanisms, the way we think about food, interact with it, and the way we uh, think about our uh, caloric, you know, so many calories you eat in terms of how much exercise we do. Certainly changes to infrastructure so that people are encouraged to cycle more. There's parking stations, et cetera. I know Sydney has had Lord, a Lord Mayor who's very keen on this. Societies where there's more incidental exercise, so less, less car driving, more bike riding, walking, etc. And then the second thing is just how people eat and their interaction with food. I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in the community and also proliferation of fast food, which is very difficult to re remain a, a low calorie or a normal, normal calorie diet with proliferation of fast food. So Australia, where, like the United States, more and more individuals are you know, going to fast food. Some people probably never even eat at home anymore. They're always eating out and they're really dense caloric food with high salt, high fat, because they taste really nice. And it's quite difficult. Like if you go to the United States, it's almost impossible to find a salad anywhere. And I think that situation is going to slowly develop here. So with prevention, it's difficult. And some people obviously have a tendency towards uh, obesity than others. And then with the treatment, it's even harder because... The success through diet alone, if you're one of those people who are like a BMI of over 40, which is quite overweight, the chance of a diet successfully keeping off that weight once you are obese is actually quite low. If you look at people who go on those shows like Biggest Loser, who massively lose weight with teams of uh, exercise physiologists and dietitians floating around them, almost all of them put their weight back on. And interestingly or concerningly is that the weight that they burn energy drops. So the body goes into this starvation mode 
and often never comes out of it. And so these poor people get stuck in this difficult situation where they're not eating that much anymore, but they're not losing much weight either or keeping it off because their uh, body is trying to fight it by dropping their, uh, the rate they burn calories. And so they're in a catch-22. And so you almost have to uh, encourage high BMI people, uh, which I've done today quite a few times, who've tried multiple diets have failed, either through weekly weight loss injections. So there's now, as you're well aware, David, I'm sure, but there's different types of injectable therapies that are quite successful and people can lose you know, 15 to 18, 20 kilos through weekly injections. Or the other alternative is, of course, bariatric surgery. And that's usually very successful in people reducing a large amount of their excess body weight. Now, it doesn't often completely reduce it all, but it certainly um, helps them. So some people who have a very high BMI, bariatric surgery is, is quite a reasonable thing to consider. And the, one of the papers you mentioned has just come out where they looked at people who needed were undergoing knee replacement and they randomised them into half who were going to have a bariatric half of a bariatric surgery and the other half did not. And those who received the bariatric surgery had lower rate of complications. Now, not to say that you know, most of my patients are overweight or obese and they've tried to lose weight. And look, knee replacement is often a life-changing thing for them, but they do have higher risks of, out, of problems with, as I mentioned earlier, infection, et cetera. So I'm just going to dig into that question again. From a policy perspective, from a societal perspective, and again, it's, I guess it's probably not a black and white answer, but where do you think as a community citizen, as opposed to a surgeon, where should we be spending our precious resource in terms of the health service? Mm, it's... <laughs> and then I'll ask you as a surgeon. Well, you can do it a couple of ways. You can actually do it so it doesn't really cost anything because you can tax fast food, which has been proposed. So you could actually do it. And I'm no expert on policy design for obesity, I must admit, but you could do, do it through ways that were cost neutral. Be it, I know that bariatric surgeons have been pushing for bariatric surgery to be covered under Medicare. And there's multiple health economists looking at the actual cost of that. And there's a cost-effective undertaking to fund it because you will save money quite rapidly if people lose weight, both with their less requirement for joint replacement and also lower complications, they do have it, but also lower rates of diabetes and everything else that throws from being obese. I guess from a general perspective, I would try and encourage both healthy eating campaigns, but also an increased amount of ability to have incidental exercise because the moment people uh, you know, they go to the gym and they'll burn maybe 300 calories at the gym and then they'll go and have uh, a latte and uh, a muffin and they've sort of already eaten more calories and they've just uh, burnt off. So more education programs is also required as well. Yeah, so I'll just extrapolate a little bit on some of your responses there. So at least from a primary prevention perspective, there's been a lot of wonderful work showing that there's a number of different interventions that happen at a societal level, so this is in the general community, um, suggesting that taxing unhealthy foods, banning junk food advertising, increasing physical activity interventions, uh, increasing food labeling are all cost beneficial. 
And so they don't cost society really anything, and they probably save us quite a lot of money. So, you know, at least from a primary prevention perspective, there's lots of things that we could do as a society about reducing the general weight of our community. And you've probably heard me say this before, but, you know, if we reduce the weight of the general community by about five kilograms or one body mass index unit, the rates of people developing osteoarthritis would go down by about 25 to 30%. So it's, it's quite profound. What we're probably really talking about today is more the secondary or tertiary prevention. So you've identified a population of people who are obese, who are symptomatic related to complications from potentially from their being above a healthy weight. And we're talking about options related to that. And so you know, obviously diet and exercise is one option. Chris mentioned about the new pharmacologic therapy. So there's a range of new, oftentimes injectable subcutaneous injections that you can have weekly that attain weight loss benefits, usually in the order of about 15% body weight loss. So it's really quite substantial, probably not as much as you might get from a more invasive forms of bariatric surgery. So, you know, if we talk about laparoscopic banding, that probably gets you to about 15%, but oftentimes people evade the benefits of the band after a couple of years, and then sleeve gastrectomy might become are sensible, and that might get you to about 20% weight loss. So there's lots of different options that are out there. And the trial that Chris just mentioned, which they randomized people to a laparoscopic band or not prior to potential knee replacement, as Chris suggested, the, the rates of complication were substantially down. But in addition, about a third of the people who had the lap band decided that they didn't actually want to have their knee replaced. And the outcomes in terms of pain and function were comparable really between the two groups. So Chris, when you're seeing someone in your practice, and we've, I guess, touched upon this a little bit, but when they present to you and they are above a healthy weight and they're presenting with knee pain related to arthritis, what's the conversation you have with them? You know, what time period is that played out over? In terms of uh, what, during the consultation or... Well, both the consultation, but I guess also I'm imagining you're going to say, try and do this and come back and see me after X period of time. But you probably have long consultations. It may, it may take you three hours in the first instance. I don't know. <laughs> so it is difficult. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. I grew up on the Gold Coast. My parents live here. And uh, my mother said to me a couple of years ago, I said, oh, Chris, none of my friends want to come and see you because you won't operate on them. You just want to tell them to lose weight. And so they go somewhere else. So it's always a difficult subject to broach, but every patient comes and we measure their weight and I calculate their body mass index. And then we have a general chat and have a graph that points, puts them on where they are and compared to normal. And then we just have a general chat about, look, I say, if you are lighter, your arthritis will hurt you less. You'll be able to do more. And if you do come to knee replacement, you'll do better and may actually be able to completely avoid it, which is music to a lot of patients' ears, but a lot of these patients have been trying to diet for many, many years, and they find it very difficult because they've tried all sorts of diets and it really has failed. And that's where I start referring them on to either specialist programs, general practitioner, or uh, there are local weight loss clinics here have uh, general practitioners who specialize in non-surgical weight loss. And then I have a general discussion about, look, there are options in terms of injectables you mentioned, 
And then a lot of patients have also considered bariatric surgery because in Sydney, but on the Gold Coast, every second bus has an advertisement for bariatric surgery on it, how it changed people's lives. And often it does. So I find a lot of people are aware of the surgical options, but quite rightly, they're concerned about, you know, untoward effects of the bariatric surgery. And so they're people who usually have tried everything else and are absolutely miserable and then they need to proceed. So the general discussion is, which I had today with a gentleman, he's 47, he's got quite severe osteoarthritis, he's got a BMI of 36, so he's you know at least 30, 40 kilos over his ideal weight. He's quite a tall gentleman and, and he was well aware of it. And so we had a general discussion and he's going to go back to see his general practitioner about that. So I was trying as a clinician because guide them in that area as to follow up. It's little point saying, I should go and lose weight and then leave it at that. You do need to put in place a structured mechanism for patients, either through the GP or through a special program, through some way that it's followed up and taken further. And then depending how they are as, as to how bad their symptomatology is, if they are severely arthritic and essentially really need a knee replacement. If their BMI is over 50, they need to do some rapid weight loss because uh, their weight of the risk of mortality that is not surviving the procedure over 50 is quite high. And so people's BMI. What number is, do you know the number off the top of your head? Just in terms of the mortality rate. Oh, look, it's a, it's a percentage increase of about four to five times over the baseline. So BMI 50 is, there's a dramatic increase of risk of mortality compared to even people who have a BMI in the 40s and 30s. So not only are they, they get high rates of infections but, and blood clots, but they also get a high rate of heart problems, uh, all sorts of terrible things. So, you know, I've had people who come along with moderate to severe arthritis and BMIs are 50 and they've gone off and lost the weight and never had to replace their knee, as you mentioned. So... Weight loss is quite a dramatic thing and it often puts it off for a long time, you know. The people I see who have absolutely terrible knees, you know, they, they look like they've been a cowboy their entire life, walking with just shocking bowed legs. They are your 75-year-old farmers who are very fit, just kept moving, they've kept fit, they've kept the weight low. They're the people who get by with absolutely terrible-looking knees for many, many years. In fact, often come in and they've been sent by their family because they've got these bowed legs, but the pain isn't too bad. And it's because they're very fit and lean and even have advanced arthritis, they don't really have enough symptoms to warrant joint replacement. A lot of people come in and they're very focused on the x-ray saying, I've got bone on bone doctor and I really need it. Don't you think so? I'm like, no, really, you, your arthritis isn't too bad. And if you get some lifestyle change, weight loss, some exercise, et cetera, very likely you not need a knee replacement right now. And in fact, not for many years, if at all. Now, you're obviously a good citizen. I would imagine, as you said before, a lot of these people, once you've had that conversation with them, go down the road to someone else who wants to operate on them rather than just tell them to lose weight. What should we be doing as a medical community about that? And I'm not necessarily thinking about discouraging poor practice on the part of some people who might want to operate on people irrespective of their body mass index but are there barriers to people accessing some of the services you spoke about both in terms of pharmacologic weight loss um, bariatric weight loss diet and exercise and the reimbursement associated with any of those is it challenging 
Yeah. As a general practitioner, there's no high remuneration or remuneration for people who manage osteoarthritis, nor is it there to manage their obesity, which is really an odd situation. So you know, there's there, there's, there's higher payments and care plans for people, say, with diabetes and other metabolic diseases, but the core problem is the obesity, and there's not really uh, good funding for that, and there's also not no funding at all for how to manage osteoarthritis. So a lot of people I'm seeing, I don't really need to see as a surgeon because they don't need surgery. They just need some lifestyle advice, and that doesn't really need to be done by myself. In fact, I'm probably not as good at it as other clinicians are. And really, surgeons better off seeing people who really at end stage, they've lost weight, they've rehabbed, and they're the people who have failed all that and they're really in lots of pain. They're the ones that we need to see for joint replacement. I think that the person goes down the road and has a joint replacement, it's probably a failure on my part to explain it well, that I just haven't really got through to that individual as to what the benefits there. And I probably think that's not their fault. That's probably my fault as a clinician that, you know, why don't you just replace my knee? One of the other reasons you do think we are doing more and more knee replacements that we're just getting better at it and outcomes are faster so people see their friends having their joints replaced and they're only in hospital a day or so. Sometimes it's a short stay. They don't stay more than 24 hours. And some of the rapid recovery programs, the pain really isn't like it was you know, 10 years ago. So people I replace one knee now and I did their other knee 10 years ago, it's like chalk and cheese in terms of recovery. I do think that's somewhat driving it people decide look i'm just sick of this pain i can't put up with it and i want to do the things that i want to do and so uh it's almost like a philosophical decision do i sacrifice a little bit of my future with it and have my uh, knee replacement now rather than later and the other thing is that our processes are lasting a lot longer where you know when i started practice we tell people you know about a 10 percent failure by year 10 and now we're down to sort of 2% failure by year 10 with modern prosthesis. And that's a big difference. So that means that you can have your knee replacement, say 60, and it's probably going to see you out if you have you know, an average life expectancy, which we couldn't offer people 10, 15 years ago. So there's certainly not only the obesity is driving it, but probably ease of recovery and the outcomes are a lot better with more modern techniques. Marvellous. Now, from the perspective of, the topic that we're talking about, particularly obesity and joint replacement, are there other things that we should have spoken about or any resources in particular that you'd like to point people towards that might be helpful that we can provide a linkage to in the notes? Yeah, so there are uh, lots of excellent programs for non-operative management of osteoarthritis, and we can provide links to those. And there's various uh, programs around the country but probably I say to patients, the most important thing is self-education. You know, people need to grab the uh, mantle of the disease themselves That's and they can manage it themselves. And self-management is probably the one of the most important things when people realise what's happening and they know that, okay, they get these flares of osteoarthritis, but they shouldn't be fatalistic about it and, you know, get an X-ray after two weeks of knee pain and rush off to see a surgeon. They need to accept that they're going to have these little flares manage it, 
ride it through and then uh, work with it and know that it is probably going to settle. Osteoarthritis pain fluctuates and, you know, just a lot of patients say to me, oh, but it's going to get better, isn't it? Is it going to get worse eventually, doctor? I'm like, yes, but that's not a reason to have your knee replacement. Have a knee replacement because the pain really hurts now and you've had it for months and months and can't put up with it. So there's lots of resources that are available and they are really therapist-led as well. And so not only, you know, we're now more talking about not so much obesity, but just the general management of knee osteoarthritis, but you know, essentially uh, activity modification, strengthening the quadriceps and continuing to move is important. People get fatalistic. I've got a sore knee and they stop doing everything where they really need to keep going. Okay, rest it for a couple of days, but get at it, get up and start going, you know, ride your bike, go for a walk, all these things, because the worst thing to do is stop doing everything sit around a chair, you get depressed, overweight, all your muscles start wasting and you end up with a knee replacement fairly quickly unless you make some changes there. So the people who do best basically just keep going, keep lean, keep fit, keep active, manage the pain as best they can. And really those programs we could put some linkages to are really just a continuation of that and having self-awareness, self-education around what's happening so that you know what's going on. Really, really important positive messaging. And I hope your mum continues to send her friends your way because I think you're doing a tremendous job. Now, I'm just going to get into the rapid fire round. Favourite book? Look, it's Master and Commander, the books by Patrick O'Brien, which is also my favourite movie as well. <laughs> two, two for one. Dog or a cat person? Uh, dogs, yes. Well, I'm not a... <laughs> Actually, I'm allergic to cats, so, uh, you know... Yeah, it's a good way to be. Favourite quote? One quote which I think is important for this, that you, know, you can't outrun a bad diet, which is what my wife constantly quotes. And I think it's actually true because gyms just don't work. In fact, people go to gyms often put weight on because I sort of alluded to earlier, they then start, their hunger goes up and they start to eat more. So you need to really focus 80% of it's on what you're eating, the type of food, and then 20% is what you're doing as well. But it's important exercise as well. The second one is more one of my mentors said to me, which is uh, yeah, the cream always rises to the crop when I was a very junior registrar and worried about my future. And uh, that was a very nice comment from me at the time. So I always like that comment. I do say to my children quite frequently. Superb. Um, speaking of which, what's your favorite food? Oh, look, uh, basically, basically Italian food, given my heritage. We're actually going to Italy soon. So I'm, I'm happy to starve myself before I go because my uh, my aunt basically tries to kill us over 48 hours. We go to the village and she literally force feeds you. And if you don't eat nine courses, she gets very, very upset. Oh, well, enjoy. Enjoy. Do you have a bad habit? Uh, rumination. Always second-guessing myself. Yeah. Mm, which is not a good habit. Where would you next like to go on holiday? Probably I've got a few holidays planned, but one would be to a motorbike ride in south america starting at the southern tip in terra de fuego and head up into chile another would be around romania there's some amazing riding but unfortunately romania shares a border with ukraine at the moment so that would be best avoided currently now it sounds like you've got lots of powers but if you could have a superpower what would it be <laughs> uh to make my children do what i wanted them to do good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> And if money were not an issue, what would you do? Probably, uh, yes, try and visit every country in the world. Yeah. 
Now I'm going to try and wrap things up and just focus on one question to finish off with, but why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Uh, look, when I was a medical student and as an intern, don't take offense to this, David, being a physician, but the surgeons I noticed really changed people's lives. You operate on them and their life has changed if you had a good outcome. So what I do is fantastically fulfilling because you do change people's lives and people say that, thank you, doctor, you've changed my life. Now, the flip side of that is when someone doesn't have as good outcome as you or they would like, then that's a bit concerning as well, you know? But that's why I like it because essentially, and I like doing, you know, I'm a bit of a handyman and I've always liked working with my hands and that's what surgery is. You operate on someone and you can actually change their life forever for the good. Well, I hope you continue to make such a big difference. And I just want to close in thanking you for spending a little bit more time with us for the wonderful insights that you've provided, the thoughts, the reflection um, on what is probably a relatively controversial topic, but I think is going to become uh, increasingly more important. And it's great to have thought leaders like you involved in hopefully reflecting on the impact of weight and and joint replacement requirement so chris thank you again really appreciate it thanks very much for the invitation david it was very enjoyable thank you very much for your continued support of the joint action podcast and i hope you found today's topic of both interest but potentially also relevance either to yourself or to a close friend who may benefit from the advice that you got from the content therein. There are obviously a couple of podcasts where we've spoken about issues like this before, and I would point you towards Steve Messier's conversation with me about ways to lose weight through diet and exercise, but also my conversation with Jonathan Samuels about the role of bariatric surgery. We spoke a little bit about a couple of manuscripts that were obviously quite topical, and we'll include the links to those articles in the show notes from today, particularly as it relates to obesity being associated with an increased risk of undergoing knee replacement, but also the effects of bariatric surgery on risk of complications after total knee surgery. This is a critical issue for our society to face and to discuss. As a community, uh, we are all increasing in weight, um, and that's having a huge impact on a range of common diseases, including osteoarthritis, but also health service utilization. So that's costs borne by the health service related to care for obesity-related complications, such as osteoarthritis. Now, the rates of surgery are going up, and there's a number of reasons that Chris explained why they might be going up. But obviously, one of the reasons is the increasing numbers of people who are above a healthy weight. And that not only impacts surgeons the rates of complications and the age at which people are having surgery, but also drains precious health service resources that potentially could be being spent on other things. So it's really important we discuss this as a community, come up with a rational solution for the best way to manage this, both from a primary prevention angle, and that's targeting people who ideally at, at this point are not above a healthy weight, then doing prevention studies on people who are above a healthy weight, who also have knee pain. And considering how best we allocate our precious health resources moving forward. 
Thank you again so much for the support of the podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. And in the interim, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 